How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Shy Show. Cinema there. I'm exacerbated. We can start again. Yeah. How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show, episode 250. Yay! Quarter of a millennium. Not a bad innings, Jake. Not a bad innings. No, a quarter millennium. I got my cricket said. bat and I'm declaring to the crowd. Oh, very good. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a flag that accidentally uh, gets lost in the, in a protest. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I like, I like the cricket bat a lot better. Sir, is that a news thing? Was that something that happened? No, no, no. Oh, it was okay. in modern times. Oh, at the start, near the clever. start of the film. Yeah, yes, that is clever. He gets mistaken. Clever. He um, I don't know who gets arrested more, me in GTA or or um Charlie Chaplin in this film. You actually get arrested <laughs> in GTA. <laughs> Amateur Some, over here. Sometimes, well, it, you know, it's the older games where it's like harder to, like the car takes longer to start, uh, and the cop they fling the door open and bam, you automatically are busted. Right. But the newer ones you got you got like a few set you can drive off while they open the door and, and I'm getting really technical here, aren't I? Mm. <laughs> For episode two hundred and fifty, we should be we should be celebrating Zeke. Can you believe it? Um two hundred and fifty episodes, week in, week out, no breaks, no days off. That's it. You Jake- got your little two hundred and fifty dollars a week plus tips. Yes. I'm getting paid. That's uh that's from Do the Right Thing, Zeke. Oh, very that good. Very good. A film that hasn't uh, no. got as much love on this show. I think it was up for a countdown for the decades at one point. Yeah. I don't know what it lost to. I can't remember. Yeah, it would have been another 80s, 80s film. Mm. Um, but hey, we're not talking about Do the Right Thing today. But we are in modern times, Jake. Speaking of modern times, what is your fun trivia fact from the Charlie Chaplin film Modern Times? Yeah, so I, I found this quite interesting. Probably one of the most iconic shots in the film is is quite early on when uh, the tramp, or, no, Sir Charlie Chaplin's character, gets trapped inside the gears of the machine, uh, which kind of looks like film going through a projector, which I like that little uh, little tidbit there. Uh, now, that machine was actually made of rubber and wood rather than steel, which I guess is the illusion of what you're looking at. Um, however, it was still very uncomfortable for Mr. Charlie Chaplin, and he only wanted to do one single take. So, in the scene, when the machine's reversed and he's rolled back out the other end, that is the same footage simply reversed, which is very clever, I think. Oh, it's very clever. Yeah. Well, this film is obviously cited by more contemporary examples, more modern examples, mm. if you will. Um, but what is interesting is how aggressive this film is to making political statements, which Indeed. is something that, you know, obviously being a director's corner, we're going to be talking about the whole career of Charlie Chaplin, but this yep. is definitely a pivot point in his career. Mm. Um, as we'll talk about in the second half of the show, because I did manage to catch another of his films. Ooh, excellent. I caught quite a few this week. I'm very impressed with myself. Yeah. Weirdly addictive, but we'll get into that in the second <laughs> half of the show. I like it. Um, but this was one of the films which, uh, because of its political sentiments, convinced the House Un-American Activities Committee that Sir Charles Chapman was a communist. So this obviously mm. is a good reflective period because obviously 1937, we're about on the precipice of World War Two. The ideas of communism are in their infancy at this point. They're mm. not really at the forefront. There's whispers of, of this, that, and the other, but nothing um, overt unless you're in Russia, sure. which obviously, you know, we see that sort of with films we've talked about on the show with Come and See. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because obviously we've talked about the Hayes Code quite a bit yes. over the course of this show and this is sort of the seeds of it. And like I said, I think this is a big pivot point in his career from uh, moving from 
more innocent and earnest vaudevillain pieces mm. to something a little bit more political. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this was the first Charlie Chaplin film I saw several years ago. I think it was actually our E.T. episode, like, what, 82, around that, that time period when I first watched it and, and just being so awestruck by how political it was and how politically relevant it is even today. It's exploration of, like, the uh, industrial age and... Micromanagement. Auto- micromanagement, automation, all of these things that are still relevant today, of course. Um, just absolutely phenomenal with Charlie Chaplin. And I and I, I did catch many of his other films, including The Great Dictator, which came out just a few years after that, uh, which I think is very interesting in a lot of ways. So um, we, we can get on to that very soon. I wanted to mention a couple of things before we get into what we've been watching in the last week. So I wanted to give a little shout-out to Mr. Martin Scorsese, who's officially joined Letterboxd, Zeke. He's now on Letterboxd. We welcome stand Martin. Him. Welcome Marty. Welcome. Well, late to the party, but yeah, that's all right. That's it. You know, uh, probably uh, thanks to uh, Francesca doing a lot of the the work <laughs> on the TikToks and all and all of that stuff. We stand her too, but he is already the most followed account with over two hundred and sixty followers as of right now. So he gained that in less than a week. But this kind of perfectly segues into something else. Two hundred sixty million. Uh, sorry, two hundred sixty thousand followers. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Letterboxd is that popular. Okay. <laughs> Maybe one day, hopefully one day. But this segues kind of perfectly into something else I wanted to mention because we talked about Killers of the Flower Moon last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things we were talking about, obviously, is its pacing and its length at nearly three and a half hours and uh, whether or not films like that needed an intermission. Now, what I've been reading, I thought this was very interesting. There's a lot of cinemas, I think, mostly in the US that have gone rogue, Zeke. They've added their own intermissions into the screening of the film without letting Paramount or Apple know. So the their response has basically been to shut it down because it apparently violates the distribution rights, which actually does make sense to me. Um, but what what's your opinion on this, Zig? That cinemas is kind of deciding when and where to put an intermission in a film. Well, uh, from a legality point of view, there's not really a foot to stand on. Mm. So let's let's talk in the frameworks of of sort of ethics, but even more important, the 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 drive of business, which mm. is to to an extent to appease your clientele. Who are your clientele? Well, they're moviegoers. Mm. So, um, to be honest, we we sit here, and the reality is, you pay twenty dollars a ticket, um, which is not a cheap amount of money to pay. And we've sure. we've uh, especially in in our in our modern world. Um, I'm going to refrain from saying modern times. I was waiting for it. I was smiling. Um, (laughs) And, but it's true. Like it's an expensive experience. Like we talked about it last week for us three to go together. It was $70, which is, you know, you can't fathom having, and that's not, that's not food or drinks. That's just free tickets to go see the movie. Yeah. And, I think Luke paid for his Maltesers an obscene amount. Of oh, money. it was like eighteen dollars for like Maltesers and like a thing. I, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. and it's sort of like well, you sit there and you kind of go, well, one of the things that might not want them, like they might not come back, mm. is if they're uncomfortable and or if they feel like they need to get up and go to the bathroom halfway through. And and back in the day, that's what the intermission was there for. Mm. Is is there for much like it is when you go watch a live performance yep. of a musical. This and the other. It's for you to get up, get load up in small confectionaries, and in America they do free refills for their stuff. So that's nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> not for the waistline, but it's, uh, um, 
And I think that there would be a certain percentage of people that will be like, I am never going to a film. And then mm-hmm. they start judging films on runtime, which yep. like, we've, that's the other side of the coin is that's wrong to be like, how, oh, the film is good. It was a hun- only a hundred minutes. So it was easy mm-hmm. to watch. You know, it goes both ways. I mean, you know, we had people, we had a very good cinema overall. But yep. we could have easily had people, you know, kids getting uncomfortable and and or like teenagers getting restless because they yep. can't sit still, and then it ruins our experience. You know, we had people by the second hour, we'd had pretty much the entire cinema get up at some point to go to the bathroom, yeah. and that would be remedied if it had an intermission. And, mm. and I don't think it would have hindered our experience. Yeah, I'm kind of. I think when I think about the business side of the cinema. I think lately when I... The whole intermission argument, which just as a general stance I've sort of been against for no real reason. I guess it's just like a selfish reason. Of like, oh, mm. and that's the way the film was intended to be made. And like, oh, well, if cinemas want... Cinemas, they want to fit more session times in, you know, during the day. That's how they make more money. You're completely ignoring the fact that you're right. Having an intermission means more people come out to refresh their drinks. More people are comfortable during the entirety of the cinema experience. More people that are like... I, I mean, I know people who refuse to go and see it in the cinemas because they're going to be uncomfortable for three and a half hours. And I, I'm usually the guy that makes the joke, like, you should get your bladder checked if you need... But to be fair, it's like, well, I know people who are, like, in their 70s. They're like, I would watch it, but there's no way yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get through it. So there's also that aspect of an intermission would actually bring more people to the movie. I think the solution is simply this. If, if studios and, and especially directors could just get behind having the option of, okay, well, let's let cinemas have the option to do it because a lot of them probably will see better sales and better revenue by doing it. But just pick, just where in the movie, what part, where should it be? Just just answer that question and then have two versions in the cinemas that people can choose which one they want to go to, intermission or no well, intermission. let's look at it from a, you know, we're doing a film from the 30s, you know. Yes. We know for a fact, we've, we've talked about Gone with the Wind on the show. That's a film that definitively has an intermission. Mm-hmm. Does it need one? No. I mean, the film can just continue. It doesn't. Sure. It, But they've picked that midpoint because that's just what it was like. And, mm. and to be honest, we keep using the word cinema experience. Having an intermission makes it more of an experience, yep. I feel. Because I you sit there, you go out, and the first thing you do is you talk about the first half of the film. Mm. Whatever you feel. And even by talking about it, I think in a film this long, obviously, only in films this long, you can actually sort of almost cleanse your palate because you're you're mm. kind of guessing where the story's going to go. You're talking about whether you've enjoyed the first half. Oh, you haven't enjoyed it? Why? Or I really liked when this part happened. And that can almost jog your memory on what you just consumed. Yeah. Because, you know, if we didn't have this show, how many times have we watched a movie and then completely forgotten an <laughs> aspect of it yep. and then brought it up on the show or one of us has brought it up and went, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Because there was another three hours and 25 minutes that mm. I had to remember. No, that happened several times last week for me. Um, and it's interesting because an intermission might help reinvigorate that or spark mm. that conversation. And um, last week, that would have been a, an interesting thing to have when we went and saw Killers of the Flower Moon to sit mm. there halfway through. But yes, you agree. It's wrong for cinemas to go rogue, but at the same time, they're what they're trying to do, they're not trying to do anything... It's not malicious. No, you're right. They're trying to enrich the cinematic experience for the people that are attending their business. Yeah. 
because that that's the that's their point of view is like okay well more people they don't have to miss part of the film because they know the intermission is going to be there so their patience sort of wears longer because they know okay there is going to be a point when i can do that without missing the experience and then again it goes back to like reordering more wasn't the irishman like broke that. up into parts um on by netflix was that no thing? i think that was the hateful eights they re-released as like a four-part series right I that, that's, that's my thing it's like you know the difference between a streaming service is the fact you can hit pause get up and yeah go to the fridge go to the bathroom and you're not ruining anyone's experience you're just suspending your own but we're talking about making basically making cinemas great again mm. you know like <laughs> we're but to get our red hats <laughs> <laughs> but it's true because it's like there are these little things that help refine the experience. We've talked yeah. about being stricter with ushers, ushers coming in and being like, get out if you're not up to if you're par. disrupting and, the experience, correct. But intermissions, there's an, an earnest argument for it because there are times where you're sitting there going like, oh, I've drank too much of my soft drink or mm. my iced coffee. I really need to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to miss a single minute of this experience. Yeah. And if you knew that an intermission was coming up, you can avoid that 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 problem. Yeah. Um, I, I think the fact that this has come up quite a lot in just the last few years, this whole thing of bringing back an intermission, I think that is a conversation that the, the cinemas need to start having with the studios. I mean, they, they already have these through-line connections. They have to chat about distribution of films and all of that anyway. Why not? Like, okay, well, let's sit down and figure this out. You know, why don't we have options for intermissions? Why don't we make it a requirement for films over X minute? Any any film over three, say, hours. Uh, three even two and a half. I would say even anything over two and a half that you legally need to provide us with like time codes of like when when it's a good time to do an intermission. Or I mean, this is the thing when you go and see like a Wazoo performance of a film. I mean, like you know, I saw like Amadeus and Toy Story and films like that with the live orchestra. They all have fade to blacks and intermissions embedded in the video they have. Mm. I don't know if it's a DCP or whatever they're playing on there, but it's like, okay, so even an 80-minute film like Toy Story has an intermission spot for purposes of, like, a live orchestra performance. Yeah, allowing them to recover, you can... Because yeah. they, need, they need a break, too, in that situation. Well, exactly. And, like, I know that's the argument for theatre is, uh, well, a lot of the break is to do for the performance. Performers is not their audience. But to that point, you're right. It's like the studios, it seems like a lot of them already have those little time codes for intermissions. All you have to do is share that information with the cinemas and they can choose whether to include those intermissions. My counter-argument is in a three-hour and 26-minute film, adding a 15-minute intermission break and you do that over every time that film runs in that cinema over the day, you're only losing about an hour and a half because that film can only run at three hours and 26 that film can only realistically run five times at most during that day yeah like per cinema per cinema yeah yeah. so you're not making the time up enough to have another screening right and even Um, if you did you're right it might be one screening which would probably be made up for by the the increased amount of people going to the additional screenings and the potential revenue you make from people coming up and refilling their drinks and popcorn, etc., etc. Et and here we don't do free refills, mm. so um, people probably would get a, a refill. Yeah. Or if they did an incentive where the second one was half price, people most definitely would cash in on that. You know, there are other models to yeah, like capitalize on that fifteen minutes, and then everyone also that morale of the mm. cinema, correct? 
because you're not as you're not sitting there and there are people there sitting there going like oh can this film end mm. and they start clocking off the experience yeah because they're they're worn out they've consumed so much information and it's like you said anyone that's going to the cinema for a three and a half hour film it's not like they've been like oh I need to get out of here as soon as it's like you've already sort of committed that time yeah. so what's an extra thirty minutes to enhance that experience so. I I think I am coming around. I don't like the studios willy-nilly just... Sorry, not the studios. The cinema's willy-nilly picking a random intermission point. I mean, it's like SBS On Demand. I'm guessing that's where you watch Modern Times and a couple of these other films. Yeah. SBS On Demand, perfect ad breaks. They pick the perfect... Every single film I've watched on there, I'm like, that's a great place to throw in an ad. Like, There's an art to it. So I would like if the studios and the directors had input in it. But I've gone from sort of um, anti-intermission to pro-intermission very quickly after reading this article. So uh, Excellent. I just thought it was very interesting for us to discuss. What a kickoff. I know. But Jake, you mm. just said, what have you watched in the last week? Well, it's funny. I did go to the cinema <gasps> in the last week. I did watch a film that I could have done with an intermission. Maybe. Just maybe. Um, this is exciting. So uh, let me set the scene for you because... Um, so we have friend of the show Blake, who of course worked on Skin and Blister with us earlier this year. He's uh, what's well, his birthday tomorrow, Halloween Day. Very exciting. Mm. Now one of his favorite films of all time is The Dark Knight. Now this is a film, and I'm I'm repeating stories that he's told me. I'm not sure how accurate of a recounting this is. Apologies, Blake. The, the, exactly. <laughs> We're sorry, Blake. But my understanding is that he and he had a friend as well in high school that they would re-watch these, the Dark Knight trilogy over and over and over, like obsessively. Until the point where they sort of pinky swore, like, we got to stop. <laughs> we need to give ourselves several years at least away from this so we can come back to it and enjoy it almost fresh again many, many years later. So his girlfriend, Tegan, organized that where a bunch of his friends and even family from down south all came and surprised him at Luna this past weekend with a screening of The Dark Knight. So I indeed got to watch The Dark Knight in the cinema for the first time. I did not watch it in cinemas back in 2008, which I was very sad about. But, um, wow, what an experience. When's the last time you watched The Dark Knight? That's one that I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Mm. It'd probably be at least, I'd say, five years. Okay. I'd say. Maybe longer. But it, it's one of those... I'm a big Batman Begins fan. Okay, um, yeah. yeah. Controversial opinion. Um, but I, I mean, I think Dark Knight, Dark Knight's like insane. Mm. It's great. Um, I actually think all three of them are really solid. I think Dark Knight Rises gets a bad rap. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I did read the funniest review, though, on the Dark Knight Rises yesterday. Yeah. The half star review. It's just like literally a book of like all the little tiniest little plot inconveniences that just drove this person insane. I was dying laughing uh, <laughs> because of how how particular they were about yeah. the plot holes. But oh, it, so it's good. an immaculate film, mm. like in terms of everything there, and and I think it's a a film that you know obviously Heath Ledger's performance is is incredible, but. Mm. A lot of other performances in it kind of get forgotten about. I think Aaron Eckhart's performance yeah. as Two Face is like, oh, it's awesome. as good in points. Mm. Like it genuinely is. I think just because Joker gets a little bit more to do, I yeah. think he gets a little bit more like the Heath Ledger. Performance well, it's a more gets... flashy performance here. Yeah. It is, and I think the Eckhart performance in a lot of ways is, is and I would say, um, you know, uh, the Commissioner Gordon 
performance from Gary Oldman is like very crucial. Both of those are really strong performances. And yeah. I think that's what makes the climax so important. Oh my God. That dynamic. Ending, and man. you forget that I, I think that, that at the center of the, particularly Oldman and Eckhart performances, I think they're honestly, they're the quiet achievers. Yeah. Especially that Eckhart performance, like mm. the real duality he, he gets, but, um, it is probably my favorite performance. Well, it's definitely my favorite Aaron Eckhart performance. Right. I can't think of one that even remotely comes close. Sure. Um, <laughs> His performance in Sully. <laughs> yeah, is fine. Um, it would have been my favorite Oldman performance if it wasn't for um, War of the Planet of the Apes. I think. Ooh, I think I that's prefer. A good yeah. I would. I think there's a fair argument that that's my favourite Oldman performance yeah. and it's genuinely Is it War perfect. or Dawn? It's the second Dawn, one, isn't it? sorry. Yeah, Dawn. it is Dawn. Um, oh my God, his, he's so His character well. is very good in that. He has that interstellar moment where he's... Yeah. The, uh, is it his phone or his... It's his iPad that comes back yeah. to life and he sees the photos and... Yeah, wow. But um, I love that you're talking about all the performances in particular. It kind of goes back to that thing I, I remember this quote from someone that's like the best Batman films are the ones where Batman's the least interesting part of the film and, I it, agree. and it kind of reminds me of like Matt Reeves' Batman where like they tried so hard to make Batman the most important part of that film and I think in part that's kind of why it, I mean it's a good film but I don't think either oh no you love the bat you love Matt Reeves's Batman yeah I think I think it's really solid I I mean I don't think it has holds I think the Nolan films are in an in an Ivy League mm. because like you said there is this great emphasis on and maybe that's why people don't like Dark Knight Rises as much because it focuses more on like you said the Batman aspect and right. Bane definitely gets a lot but the first film I mean there are it also focuses a lot on um the Batman but yeah, I, 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 I get story, your point. Sure. I get your point. Like, there's these characters worth analyzing, but I think the Batman focuses. I mean, they have. I think what I respect about Reeves is he's taken two of the more comical villains and genuinely mm. given them very interesting Penguin and and the Riddler, right? And created really strong villains out of that. Mm. And I think that that in a way is is more bold than what Nolan did because he took the Joker, which is. But th- but then the again, most... casting Heath Ledger as Joker, like that's where the boldness comes yeah. in, in his direction, or his casting, I should say. Yeah, but I don't know who you'd choose at the time, though. Who would be a more? Who else could be the Joker? There's in probably the still people pushing for Willem Dafoe. Back that, then, oh yeah, that yeah, would. Fair. I reckon even then, that would still be sort of because I don't remember it very well. That whole I wasn't about. I I actually as a child, I hated Batman for some reason. Yeah. No idea why. I just hated him until The Dark Knight, but. But that's the thing. I like, went like Sean Penn. That's what I thought. Uh, off the top oh, of my yeah, head. yeah, yeah, yeah. That could, yeah. yeah. See that. Yeah. So yeah, I was never in like that camp about like the casting. I went into the Dark Knight having like really no history of Batman or having seen Batman Begins, for example. And, and that was the thing is Kirsty went as well. Mm. And I really wish I was more sensitive about how loud. I forgot how loud the film is, especially in a cinema, just like the gunshots and the explosions. And so I felt a little bad. <laughs> about that she handled it perfectly fine she says as long as i can log in on letterbox it's fine i don't care how loud the <laughs> i'll handle it she says but no I, I i mean holy mother of god first i want to shout out to luna Lederville because they did not just put a dvd in the projector and play the film they contacted warner brothers and got a dcp specifically for this one screening so props to them that's awesome give us a proper cinematic experience but um 
the thing that blew me away about this, and I haven't seen Dark Knight in so long, probably even longer than the five years you mm. haven't seen it in, is all the things like the Nolan naysayers say about his direction being sort of rigid or cold, um, even just like the way, you're like, oh, the way he directs or writes female characters and like all, all of those things. I just kind of like that all melted away for me in this scene because, or in this film, because I thought the narrative flowed, the pacing flowed, the editing in this film is immaculate. Like it all connects so well. It's all so engaging, the the political thriller aspect of it and, and just like the, the way they're cleaning up the monsters and how the Joker ties into that story. Um, even the, the triangle between like Bruce, Rachel and, and Harvey Dent. I was generally like emotional during a lot. I was like, I can't believe this is hitting as well as it is. And then like you get to the end, the Gary Oldman monologue, like yeah. how that has to be one of the best endings of any film I've ever seen. It's pretty, it's pretty great. Like it's such a perfect monologue. It's such a great way to end this story about obviously chaos and corruption and this idea of people being uncorruptible and, and the Joker's whole thing about trying to corrupt Harvey Dent, like, it works, but it doesn't work, and the sacrifice Batman has to make at the end. Of the, but then it's like even just the music and the way it cuts, like it's so you just get goosebumps. It's so well made. I'm like, yeah, this is actually this is one of the greatest films ever made. I can totally stand by it, and I think probably my favorite Nolan film by a good. I think Inception's amazing as well, but yeah, it just I I could not believe how excellently that film just like flows. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's like two and a half hours as well. It's lengthy, but it just it just flies by. Don't need an intermission. So cool that you get to see it. <laughs> yeah, watching it in the cinema would be great. I'd... I was so... Uh, yeah. I, I, I want to do more of that. Because Luna are good with that. Playing yeah. classics on the... And I guess they do it often. I guess they order these DCPs from companies. and I'm so fascinated by the whole process. I would love to do a skin and blister screening at Luna. And it seems quite easy to organize. So, um, from what I heard, so I'm, I'm excited about that. But I had to shout that out. Um, oh, fantastic film. Absolutely wonderful. Bellissimo. Bellissimo. <laughs> now, every other film I've seen this past week does have to do with Charlie Chaplin and a lot of his Tramp films. Um, I don't know if it's more appropriate to get into that maybe during the film discussion. Probably, because it is a director's corner. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's normally to the forefront. I mean, the only other things I caught in the last week, mm. um, I did catch actually quite a bit. I, okay. I watched, um, recently dropped on Netflix a couple of things. So I'll start with um, Last Stop Larimer, which, oh. um, or Larimer The Last Stop, which is a two-episode docuseries. It might as well just be a doc. I don't understand these 60-minute docuseries. There has that to be a two- reason. Just make Some it sort a of like binging culture reason they do it for profit and like it genuinely was two sixty minute episodes, so yeah. it's two hours. Um, <laughs> and I'm I, I said to, no, Lu- the point? I said to yeah. Lucinda as we were watching them, I went, I don't understand why this isn't just a documentary because mm. it's two episodes, and you're hundred percent right. It comes maybe it comes back to the intermission idea, or you watch one so you don't it hooks you into. It's paced as if it's a docuseries. Maybe the thought. There'd be more episodes. Yeah, maybe it was a last-minute decision to just cut it down to two hours, mm. and, and there was some contract with Netflix where they they couldn't make it a feature. Well, and it's produced by the Duplass brothers, so oh, I, I went okay. Cool. My eyes, my eyebrow went up. In the, <laughs> One in eyebrow the, in the rock esque <laughs> way, um, and I was yes. like, okay, I'm in. And basically, the concept is roughly about. 
uh, five hours south of Darwin in the in the territory. Oh. Um, there is this little town with a population of eleven people, um, and there's still drama. You, you better <laughs> believe it. Um, <laughs> called Larimer. Now Larimer was a town that, at a point in the late seventies, was quite popular mm. um, due to Vietnam, and a lot of our troops and conscriptions actually were based in the Northern Territory. It's kind of why, and I will actually, it made a lot of sense even watching this doco because. It made a lot of sense why I feel like when I went to Darwin, I was trapped in some 70s, 80s bubble mm. because they've got like the massive fans, Jake, and they're all like casually like drinking. And I mean, look, Australia has a casual drinking culture. We talked about it back on another round, mm. all those uh, hey, episodes ago. But Darwin feels like almost a time capsule of like 80s Australiana. Yeah. It's weird because of the humidity and all that stuff. And Basically, this this town at a point was quite populated because of the conscription. A lot of Australians kind of migrated to the north because obviously... To avoid conscription. No, because they were conscripted in the army and they would come back after Vietnam and Mm. just settle in the territory because that's where they got dropped off. Um, It's Actually, you know, if you look into it, it's one of the reasons why the population boomed so much up there because there was no one there. Right. um, Or very little. They all kind of ended up there. It became a military obviously base um but obviously over the decades most people moved out of these towns moved sure. back to um epicenters such as melbourne um and obviously even perth um and basically larimer now has been reduced to 10 11 people mm. that becomes 10 um oh and that's the that's oh the, my god that's such a great like murder mystery film right there and it's it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we were talking about the Poirot, the Agatha Christie sort of films in the last few weeks that I've been watching, but yep. this is a genuine whodunit. One of the... That's so sick. And I'm talking out of the 11 people, the average age is about early 60s, late 50s. They are yep. all middle-aged to old um, with not a lot to do. There is a hotel slash bar in the middle of town. Is this, just, got- this, this is just the dry... It essentially is the dry, but like the proper dry, like the no, real life. There's dry. no like nice little real, like the one guy with the nice real estate house in the middle of the <laughs> desert. It is houses that are unfinished. Like it is genuinely like poverish, but wow. these people just do not care. It's yep. not like they're like, oh, I'm poor and I've got nowhere to go. It's their lifestyle. They just, it's their lifestyle. And it, it's a new it, Sean Baker film. It's kind of from. Honestly, has the Florida Project aspect. But like I said, the average age is in the late 50s, early 60s. Mm. And a child hasn't been born in the town in over 40 years. Like, they all had kids. Their kids grew up. They lived in the town, moved away from the town for different reasons. Some of them got basically pushed out of the town because of the politics and drama of the town. Basically, it becomes very quickly, they start with this almost like cute, quaint Australian town. They they sucker you in and basically go, no, everyone in this town hates each other. (laughs) Like, and they've got archival footage of the guy that goes missing one night. Yeah. Um, and it basically leads into this extensive, follows about two or three years of this murder case around, or a missing persons case. Mm. Um, it's interesting. Um, it kind of, you know, like I said, it honestly could be condensed into a really tight 90, but it's quite interesting for different reasons. One, 
how do 11 people live in one place and what is that like because that is yeah. such an astronomically small amount of people yeah um to kind of wrap your head around what is that like and then obviously having one of them go missing slash is probably been murdered by one of the others what is that like mm. how is that even like investigated yeah, well, they, they yeah, kind of go through it, and it, it comes back to the the isolationism that is Australia. That you know, the fact is that when they want to go do their grocery shopping, they have to drive three hours north to Catherine oh to my do God, it. Yeah. Like, it's genuinely interesting, kind of looking into that aspect, and it's worth it because it's only two hours. But well, that's it. Yeah, um, it does turn into a lot of by the. The last half an hour, it turns into a lot of speculation. He said, she said, and sure, they kind of work out who does it, who done it, but because there wasn't sufficient evidence, mm. yeah. But it's sort is, of an open secret thing. It's, it's such an interesting exploration, um, and I can see why the Duplass brothers got there. Got yeah, their producer that surprises me the most, especially because of the whole Australiana of it all, but. I think in 250 episodes, this might be the most fascinating I've ever been by one of your random sort of recommendations. Yeah. It's it sounds worth the awesome. Watch. I saw it come up and went, yeah, I, I want to watch that. So what's it called again? Uh, it's Last Stop Larimer. That's Larimer, right. the last stop. Yep. It's, it will pop up. Yeah, Netflix, it yeah. will pop up. The other thing I watched was another series. It was an eight-episode series that mm. had hour-long episodes, which was quite Ooh. wild. Um, well, HBO to, action. It's a, yeah, it's a British uh, series called Bodies, um, oh. which has also dropped on Netflix relatively recently. Yeah, I've seen this pop up. I've been getting you know, pretty positive reviews. It is honestly, it is a fun little bit of a sci-fi crime thriller. That's mm. the best way I can describe it. It's essentially the same body appears in the exact same spot in four different times. In 1891, and 2053. Oh. I don't really want to give too much away because there's a it's a dense series. Yeah. Like to the point where So it's a mystery overall. It's a mystery of yeah, it's a crime, it's a sci-fi crime is probably the easiest way to call it. Like yeah. But it's confusing. <laughs> like there are moments so where you, you finished the series. I finished or... the series. Yeah, okay. It's good. Um and was a little surprised to see that there's a weird hook trying to get a season two, but mm. we'll see how that goes. It was good. I mean, a lot of people, I've known quite a few people that watched it and really enjoyed it. It's a fun bit of sci-fi. I kind of compare it to something like uh, Predestination with okay. the Ethan Hawke and Sarah Snook. Um, oh, yeah. I only just found it the other day she's in that. I'm like, oh, I've got to watch that. Yeah, and she plays like... I'm not going to spoil don't, that don't too. Say it, don't say Predestination it, don't say it. is what a, a, what, an interesting film too. Well, I was going to ask. It sounds a little Looper esque as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Both definitely have that. Uh, that sci-fi. It plays around with it. the sci-fi time stuff and and is both confusing and interesting. Mm. Um, definitely, interesting. honestly, it was a fun watch. Like we just we sat down and watched. I think the first episode last week. Um, or early last week, and then on Tuesday night, and then we watched the rest of the show this weekend, and we just had a because we had our charcuterie board, and we just oh, watched it, good. and honestly, it was a lot of fun because we're sitting there just talking about like what is going on in this film, because yeah. <laughs> um, I thought originally it was going to be like a janky sort of 
British B crime show. Yeah, I completely forgot the whole British aspect when you first introduced it. And it it, <laughs> it 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 does suck you in. It suckers you in. It was um very interesting. Mm. Weird, some weird choices, and like I said, sometimes it is a little difficult to follow. Okay. Um, but I felt that when I watched Predestination, I was like, "What? Like it's a lot of that." But, yeah. Um, it was good. It was good. Um, would give it a recommendation if you're looking for a. It's, it can be quite gruesome at times. Though, okay, so, but violent. So, yeah, solid MA, warranted MA. Very good. Um, and apart from another Charlie Chaplin film, that's all I watched in the last oh, week. Oh, excellent. Can I ask you which Charlie Chaplin film that was? Oh, you're going to have to wait for the second half of the show. Oh, painful. Well, you know what? I'm just going to stamp my feet and demand we do that now. I will say we do have a collective career update to share, but yep. I think it will be more appropriate to end the episode on that career update. That's pretty spicy. So stay tuned for that, folks. But, uh, I'm excited to move on, Zeke. Well, then it's time for us to move into another director's corner. This will be our. I got to do the math. We on did. This we one. did this last week. And forty. <laughs> hang on. Fiftieth. Fiftieth. No. Five. Two fifty divided by five. No, it is our fiftieth. It's fifty. Yeah. This is oh. our fiftieth director's corner. Woo! The weirdest thing is that's not that hard, and we. I still suck at math. <laughs> We're moving we just to have our, to go through it with equal performers. Our 50th director's corner. Jake, who is the director and what are we watching? We're, of course, talking about Charlie Chaplin this week, Zeke. I'm very excited to talk about this man. This young hip man. I wonder where he, his career goes from here. Uh, and his, dare I say, masterpiece, Modern Times. <laughs> Sous la cita, tout la tout la tout la wa. C'est mon tia si le mort, 
Le son Je laisse trop sa vite, je la tasse à Villatoire. The tramp struggles to live in modern industrial society with the help of a young homeless woman. Oh, cool. That was it. <laughs> Short, I was sharp. waiting for way more, but no, that's accurate. No, that's all it's got on uh, IMDb. I like it. So vague and to the point, but leaves you wanting more. So, okay, I let me run through the the Charlie Chaplin films I saw in this past week, and I feel I feel a little bad because, like, the, I mean, he he and the whole silent movie era is such a rabbit hole you can go down. Um, and I know we can even get into like Buster Keaton and, and all of that. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll give him a bit of a shout and talk about them. I wish I'd seen more of their stuff as well in relative to this discussion, but I did see the 1915 film, the tramp, which is essentially the introduction to the character. I think he does technically appear in earlier films. Uh, I saw 1921's the kid, which is, I f- guess the first feature It's mm. like 55 minutes. And then I saw this was up, on I think our very first countdown for the decades, your pick, City Lights, which I also caught, nineteen thirty one, and uh, obviously Modern Times is wedged between that and the Great Dictator, nineteen forty, which I also caught. So I managed to catch quite a lot of his, I think, pivotal works. I think this is the most you've ever watched going into a director's corner. I think it is, and and part of that, yes, is that a lot of these films are quite short. <laughs> the Great Dictator is the only one that even like approached the two hour mark, and I have some things to say about that, but. Now, there's a couple of other ones in here. I, I read about The Gold Rush, I think 1925, which sounds really interesting. I'd love to watch that. And there's one, I think, is it A King in New York, which I think is a bit of a Red Scare commentary, which is funny because you did mention the whole communism angle earlier. Yes. Um, I would love to watch those two as well. I didn't quite fit them in, but um, he has got such a brilliant filmography. I enjoyed watching all of these films whether it was just for the pure enjoyment of them or for just the influence they had on cinema there and beyond. Um, Zeke, were any of those films the one you also caught this week? Yeah, I watched City Lights. Nice. So, I mean, it's a good one to watch. I think so too. I, I think, to be honest, one of the things that I... Obviously, polarizing films in terms of mm. direction and um, if you look at that catalogue, the evolution into the more political activism doesn't come until the set the turn of the 30s really mm. yeah um this is definitely a film that definitively is trying to be a political commentary whereas city lights is is a romantic comedy really mm. that's the is it's built as a rom-com and it is a rom-com essentially with yep. a lot of earnest heart to it um and i mean man you want to have a drinking game drink every time the <laughs> tramp gets arrested that's a uh <laughs> I know, not even just in modern times in all of his films, really. Yeah, collectively. It's That's so funny. Basically, the means to the end for his character. But 
Um, yeah, big differences between the two. I, mm. I also think that we're starting to see the evolution of technology in terms of even cinematic technology and sure. and production design, obviously, between those two films built at 31 and 37 because there's a lot more camera movement in, in, in modern times mm. and obviously production value. Obviously, it has the more sci-fi aspects to it, whereas... Um, yeah, I was surprised rewatching modern times, like the screen stuff they did at the start of the film, with sort of like the boss talking to the workers through the screen. Yeah, I was surprised. I was like, "Oh wow, that's like really the only out of all the films I watched is the only time we get like a clear like visual effect." Yeah, it's definitely Orwellian by nature. It's mm. got the real um, Orwellian sort of uh, ren. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like that that touch, I guess the yeah. touch of anti authoritarian resonance. That's yeah, which is for. funny because this came out before the book nineteen eighty four was even written. Yeah, which is very fascinating. Yeah, and and it's quite in, yeah hundred percent. So maybe that comes back to like you said the 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 red scare aspect. This mm. the, the the true uh, dark side of industrialization that comes with things such as the Great Depression, which yep. obviously this film is. Kind of Very releases much. smack bang in there. Yeah. Or at least a few years after. Well, probably, yeah. yeah, towards that back end, but also having this encroaching feeling of, of World War Two and things are starting mm. to really stir up at this point. So yep. we're, we're in a true dark space when this film comes out, whereas City Lights, you know, technically comes out at the start of the Great Depression, but probably was shot towards the back end of you know the 2930 and and yeah. just has a, an optimism to it. It, it it's trying to uplift the the people watching the film who probably weren't very wealthy um following this tramp character as as they um as he tries to basically find the money to support this person's living mm. um and shows i mean it has a commentary in it the the polarizing nature of of the poor and the rich in it um and that aspect the fact that he befriends someone that uh can only really like him when he's intoxicated which yeah is... i i thought that like almost a split personality thing that that they're doing comedically through like he's drunk and then he's sober but i thought that was really fascinating and and i think the way i summed up the city lights was uh, it's essentially about i i remember thinking of licorice pizza slightly watching mm. the film because i think on on like a surface level view is like this kind of just feels like random things happening that are sort of like oh this would be a funny scenario like, oh imagine if the tramp is trying to eat spaghetti and ends up eating like um like the string that's coming from the roof or um but the thing is like they're all beautifully tied by this idea of him getting this slight taste of wealth by meeting this eccentric millionaire saving his life um inadvertently whatever you want to call it and they're getting that taste of driving the car around and, and having a fancy dinner but then the impossibility of securing that wealth. And like you said, he's got this blind girl who wants to pay her rent after she gets sick. And like it all results to this boxing match where I feel like this is Charlie Chaplin just as well in modern times. I think here also showing like kind of how futile and, and struggling life is, especially for those who are disadvantaged. And, yeah. I, and I love that the tramp as a character, I mean, on the surface, he's very, uh, not gullible, but he's very clumsy and um, very optimistic and, and hopeful and uh, all, all of these words you can use. 
that I, I don't know, like, I, there's definitely some sort of tie there where I, I don't think he's, like, a disabled character, for example. Mm. But I think he's definitely representing a subculture of people who are disadvantaged in the way that in City Lights struggles to, uh, you know, build wealth and, and in modern times struggles to hold a job and that every job he manages to find in modern times, he immediately screws it up. And even though it's something funny for the audience to laugh at, it's also something poignant for the message he's trying to deliver to the audience. Yep. Is like how soul-crushing this newfound sense of capitalism in the industrial area has caused on all these people who can't get work or can't manage jobs. Uh, and it, it even goes to, you know, the female character, Paulette Goddard's character, who she's actually in The Great Dictator too. So I think she's one of the only sort of um, Charlie Chapman women to, to make more than one film. Um, is of she Ellen? of Ellen? Yes, correct. Um, well, it must be in the little uh wanted thing at the end, is when Ellen's in there. Yeah, the I gammon. The gammon. Yeah, because I I missed the Ellen part until I think I saw it on Wikipedia, but the fact that she's disadvantaged by the the father dying and her sisters being taken away and just this sense of bureaucracy that's constantly trying to hold not only her down but the tramp as well. So like you look at both these films, and to a lesser extent the kid as well. Um, from 1921, all of Charlie Chaplin's films have this like anti-authoritarian stance, and and this idea of showing you the struggles of life and the struggles of making it, essentially in well in these modern times in the 30s and and even prior, um, while also kind of making you laugh and giggle at the all the slapstick physical comedies going on as well. I think most of these films he masters the tightrope, that mm. is like these really dark themes or really adult themes presented for a very childlike innocence and animated performance by him. It's it's a brilliant balance that he manages for all these films, I feel like. Absolutely. Um what what is interesting is obviously that um in obviously some of these films and in modern time being one of them, there are characters that do speak in the film mm. versus um something like City Lights, which is an entire silent film. Yeah. Um, and, um, sort of that, that to me is, that is quite interesting because we're almost seeing that in modern times, one of the most important, and it's set from the first, first scene when we like yes. said, you see the overseer, he talks, mm. um, and talks quite a bit in that scene for a, a film that used to be silent. And yep. there's almost is showing that evolution of, of cinema in its own right. Like we said, sounds introduced into cinema and in the, in the talkies are introduced in 1927. Mm. Um, and there's almost that meta commentary there happening where it's almost like Chaplin's having to include scenes of talking in there as a sort of a reflection of how mu- how far cinema's gone mm. from, like you said, these films like the 1921, The Kid and yep. and 15 with his the, the Tramp film. And yep. I think that that's definitely one of those meta texts that's going on. Um, in terms of the the production context of the mm. film, at least, obviously the industrialization's there at the forefront. It has nothing to necessarily do with the story, but it was something I noted that I thought well, that's him sort of saying how film is changing. People becoming less stimulated by just the visuals, which is ironic because the visuals mm. in this film are some of the most grandiose and and, <laughs> and stimulating in terms of the interaction within the frame. It's not yep. like in City Lights where there is this whole scene about. Um, around uh, a rich man trying to put a noose around his neck yeah. and and swim in a, in a water. No, he's like you said. There's these full blown cogs. There's 
roller skating next to what looks to be a, a fourth story balcony. Right. There's so much more set pieces in this film. Yeah, I, I think this. I mean, Modern Times, out of all the ones I saw, impressed me the most with its set design and the production design, and especially just this idea of like when you when he enters a set and you're like, okay, this is where the scene is set, you know, for this part of the film. You never know what part of the production design is going to maintain or disappear. Whether it's uh, the wedge that he removes, where the entire boat behind him that's filling up the entire background of the frame just like slowly sinks away, or when they find their first little crappy home that like every door can swing open and every beam can get loose and fall over. And I, I love that about his sets is that they all can kind of break apart and, and they're very dynamic in the blocking, which like you said, is like, it's all part of the visual storytelling, the visual comedy that's going around. But I think you are onto something with the fact that the, the main voice that we recall, the main dub, one of the only voices in the whole film is the boss talking to the workers. So I guess you're right in terms of representing that newfound age in cinema where we are moving into the talkies and to more sound productions, that it is the industrial side of the coin that represents that. And that Charlie or the, the Tramp as a character is almost getting lost to that world where the Tramp doesn't, he doesn't belong in a world where he can talk. He doesn't belong in a talkie. And I think the ending sort of, has an interesting way of tying that in a bow because this is the last Tramp film. The great dictator, uh, Charlie Chaplin, is playing different characters in that film. So it kind of... I feel like this film really does represent the death of the silent era, not just in the themes of the movie, but the fact that this is the Tramp's final film. And I think, without jumping too far in, that the film ends with him sinning. And it's like, this is like the, the Avengers Endgame <laughs> of the silent movie era. It's like, wow, the Tramp... Is, no, he's not only speaking, he's sinning. And it's such like a fascinating way to sort of tie a bow on that character. So I think you're right. There's tons of meta commentary going on in the Absolutely. background of this film. I mean, that, I think you've you've nailed it on the head there. Although, you know, it says it's produced by Charlie Chaplin. There is almost that self-awareness, like mm. said there. Um, I think we drastically, obviously being a director's corner, we need to address how much he not dictates these films, but they are just his films. Like mm. it, 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 we rarely see someone have their hand in so many pies, right. departmentally speaking. Um, the fact that he composes a lot of the music in these films. And, and it's it, what's interesting, because, you know, we've, we've done other 1930s directors um, on the show in, in Fleming mm. and, and... James Whale. And, and James Whale. And, and to be honest, it, it's interesting because is there someone who truly might have been maybe if not, at least in a western context is he the first real authentic auteur mm. of cinema because that's a very i think you might be onto something um because no one has meticulously thought about this many aspects of their 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 work um and ruthlessly pursued it to a, a deliberate sense at that time mm. um I mean, it's probably a good time to shout out, you know, the Buster Keatons of the world and the Harold Loys and whatnot, who were sort of also in the same echelons of the silent film era. Or era. But I think Charlie Chaplin, at least at the time, was probably the most famous of them. It's also the poignancy of, mm. of his works. You know, we're, we're talking about, like, meta-narratives and commentaries and the self-awareness of a character dying, essentially, on mm. screen by speaking, which yep. I, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head with exactly what that 
scenes trying to converse. Yeah. He's coming into the world of talking. He's accepting this industrialized development of technology. He is being lost to that world. That's that's poetry in that sense. And then that's a poignancy and a self-awareness of a character and where you've taken that character mm. over the journey that comes with an alter. That, you know, it, we kind of... We hear the name Charlie Chaplin, but like you said, it's this weird... I sat down and watched City Lights first because yep. my funny story was... I thought we were doing City Lights originally on this oh, no. uh, episode. I actually had to listen back to the previous episode. I'd like, confirm. Just because I knew it was a double header. You know, City Lights, Modern Times. Yep. I was like, I oh, was doing City Lights. But then what it made me think that is because I put it up on a poll one time mm. and I thought we were finally doing it. So I ended up having to watch. I watched both of them back to back, but obviously, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. Eighty five minutes. It was like really easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was when I sort of sat there at first, and I watched the first five minutes of of City Lights, and was like, "Oh, don't know how I'm going to feel about doing these silent films. I don't know if my my modern brain can cope right, with the I see. with the lack of stimulation." But then I found myself getting just sucked in, mm. um, and I was sitting there, and I'm like watching city lights and I'm I'm like becoming enamored and then I watched uh modern times and and mm. that was why it was so confronting in that first I just watched a f- completely silent film with yeah. text on screen and didn't even register by the end of it that I was watching a, a silent film that it was so blaringly confronting when in the first 2 minutes of modern times someone's dialogue speaks. yeah and I was like Oh, <laughs> and what's funny is like that is it's very rare for there to be dialogue in modern times, and yeah, they kind of slap it with you right at the front of the film, which like it, it's kind of the old adage I think of I think Chris Nolan when he made um, Following, mm. I think he kind of made a point of putting the most money and most energy in the first scene so that people were invested and then don't realize how much of a downgrade the rest of the cinematography goes <laughs> for the rest of the film. And I wonder if there's like a little bit of that as well with, with modern times. Well, there's a but, lot of set pieces. Like you said, mm. there's the, the, the face that appears up and is like watching as, as the tramps trying to take a bathroom break. And yep. it's like, Oh, go back to work. <laughs> um, even the assembly line, it has such a movement and fluidity to it compared yeah, to like exactly. you said, like when they get to the shipyard, it's kind of one goes back to a more traditional Chaplin esque. Like we we know something's going to move in the scene, but it's a little bit more we don't about know who framing or, or the comic, yeah. which is a bit more comical. Mm. Um, which comes back to things like in City Lights when they're sitting on seats, and the whole bit is about them just not uh, not sitting on each other's seats, and then they're yeah. falling and bumping into <laughs> each other, and it's way more slapstick in that sense. Whereas yeah. this film definitely has more environmental humor happening. Yes. Um, which is interesting because obviously that brings it back to that emphasis on industrialization and and that sort of suffocating nature of everyone's different workspaces. Yeah, and, and I think as well with modern times is like the the giant cogs that are constantly moving that characters are getting stuck in. It's like it's not even just like the boat in the house and that. Like that feels like the most exaggerated his production design has ever been, and I think that's where like the Orwellian side of it comes in. There is like oh, this more than any other of his films feels like a bit of an exaggeration, like a warning of, like, this is where we're all headed, this automated industrial world that doesn't really have room for humans anymore. It's just, I, I just, like, knowing this film's nearly 90 years old, 
and it has these like prevalent ideas in them and and but yeah i think but that also speaks to how young we are is that it's it's hard for us to concept how frankly similar things are or were a hundred years ago mm. uh, maybe even worse you know because you're right there were in a depression at this time and you know world war Two impending and this kind of leads me though we do talk a little bit about the death of the tramp and the death of the silent movie area i do want to talk about the great dictator for just a minute because i was first off this is a lot of people think of this as his best film and on the letterbox top 250 he has modern time city lights and the great great dictator all on there and great dictator is like the highest one so i was shocked when i watched it and i was like i kind of didn't get a lot out of that one and i think partly that is to do with not necessarily the transition from sound uh it's like a silent film to a talkie but the fact that it was two hours long the plots are getting bigger the political messaging especially around dictatorship and the impending world war ii um they become more prevalent in the story so all the slapstick comedy not only like unnecessarily extends the runtime while in city lights and modern times it kind of feels like it's additive to the experience but it also just feels really uncomfortable because of the whole like Hitler Nazi allegories that film is doing. It just felt really uncomfortable in that sense. And like I can't poo-poo the film because it has its place in in history. And there are still people to this day talking about how important that film is as a commentary to World War Two, especially his big epic speech at the end about like um, that we should all be chasing love and helping each other, not war. But I I think that was him struggling to make that transition from silent film to to talkie era. And like I said, a lot of people love that film, but I remember watching it being like, I kind of don't get it that much. I'm glad it... I know, a little bit. And look, I'm glad it exists. And I I think that... Okay, so here's the thing. Because Charlie Chapman, he actually went on to say that if he knew to the full extent what the Nazis were doing in World War II he wouldn't have made The Great Dictator, which I think is so interesting that he says that. And that kind of almost retroactively makes The Great Dictator a very naive film in that the way it portrays the Nazis and, and Hitler, um, or Hinkle, as as he's called in the film, uh, is it, it's not overly comical. Like, it is showing, you know, the repression of the Jews and what was happening with, like, their shops being labelled and closed down. Like, that's all in there. But... I think there was a naivete of what was really happening in addition to that, mm. that it was almost, in a sense, lucky that the film even got made and that it now has this resonance in film culture and history. I, I don't know. I think basically my takeaway is I think it actually worked out for the best that he was naive and still made the film. Yeah. Because its commentary does have an impact on, on the larger world. But I, I just thought that was interesting. Well, that's a big call, too, because, you know, he, he spent two years developing the script, um, began filming 39, so right at mm-hmm. the start of World War Two, and yep. um, obviously it comes out in 1940, and, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about other films on the show, like Casablanca, that's also coming yes. out in the middle of World War Two, and, and that's such an interesting um, sort of different methodology to it. And like you said, uh, it's so interesting um, that retrospectively... Mm-hmm. You know, but that's that reflective aspect of, of one's career and mm. I mean we, we talked about the the optimism, the sheer optimism that Casablanca has. Yes. Um, at a time where it you know, it feels like a more uh, a propaganda film in a different way. Right. Um in a 
well, good's got to triumph over evil mm. sort of sense, whereas uh, did it feel more satirical in its sense? Yeah, it, it, I'm not taking it as seriously. In a sense, yeah. I, I definitely compare modern times to like Doctor Strangelove. It has the same level of silliness in moments. There's a point where Hinkle is sort of dancing and singing about how he wants to be the emperor of the world with like a giant globe balloon that he's playing with. And it's like, it's sort of like an interesting nuanced, it's kind of like what Team America does in in that film's yes. portrayal of, of dictators. Um, and again, it's only because of the when it came out. is that, I mean, I was watching it just feeling a little awkward about it not knowing when to laugh and, and what to laugh at. And like I, I think its place in culture does prevail over my personal comfortability of the film. Like mm. At the end of the day, who cares? Um, yeah, but I just... I thought it was a weird mix of... You're right, that Doctor Strange of silliness with the, the relevance of something like Casablanca and the time and place that it, that it released. And I think the idea is that it had a easier release window because the US hadn't officially entered the war yet. I think it was still in neutral territory when the film was made. So I guess that's part of the reason it, it kind of came out. And it did very well. It's not like it bombed and then became like a cult classic. Like it made, I think it made a yeah. lot of money at the time five, it released. Five nominations at the Academy Awards too. Wow. Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor including. Interesting. So. Yeah, I think um, it lost to Rebecca, which is a very... St- <laughs> it's very strange that it lost to Rebecca. I mean, hey, that's the Oscars for you. It's always strange. Um... Yeah, but I think, look, regardless of all of that, and like you said, I think that's just like the end cap to the journey that Charlie Chapman went from making films like The Tramp in 1915, which is so apolitical, and it feels like a Mr. Bean skit where he's on a farm, like, poking people with his pitchfork, and how his stories get slowly and slowly more heartfelt and and resonate more with people and become more political. I mean, even The Kid, I I mean, that I thought it was an absolutely phenomenal film. Yeah. I mean, it's and this is the thing that it does differently... And that all of his films past the 1915 one do is that all of his films start with uh, like the, the context of the world. Or it doesn't start with him walking into frame. There's always like a setting and a time of place to establish. It's like the kid, for example, it's the woman that walks out of the hospital, has his newborn baby, doesn't want it, and abandons the baby. And then we see the tramp walk in and it's his good heart that sort of sets that tragedy. He decides to take on this child. And what plays out is a very, very sad story about a a person who raises a child for five years and then bureaucracy threatens to take it away from him just because he wasn't the one that gave birth to it. And it's like he very quickly started telling very serious stories and like you said, with City Lights, like there's more in there to read, but you you can go into the whole idea of, of the fact that this millionaire tried to kill himself. So there's that suicide yep. angle after a divorce, the split personality disorder, the fact that he is arrested also in that film, uh, framed for robbery, essentially, <laughs> with the $1,000 on him. So there's just all of these interestingly adult themes that are, that are offset by the comedy that, that the tramp in 1915 originated. I feel like I'm sort of jumping all over the place, and I do apologize for that. I'm jumping. No, all over I, I think I think you're doing fine. It's you know th- there is a lot to cover with Charlie Chaplin, mm. um, both on screen and off. I mean, sure, the man had a full life beyond even you know the great dictator, and yeah, absolutely. had a very very controversial 1940s and. And, you know, this always comes, we always come back to this thing where it's like, you know, 
there's there's a lot of controversies around there and and sounds like he didn't do some of the nicest things but it's that separating Mm. art from artists yeah i mean this is a guy that at one point was banned from the united states for (laughs) communist agendas and come back to that haze code yeah sort of post lateral and obviously ended up just residing in europe um for the remainder of his life so Mm. there's a full-blown thing i know that there are docos out there that pretty much document the order the biography of his life and and that's that so we can only really judge him on his obviously film or film podcast first and foremost yeah um and to be honest these films are interconnected particularly the decade of the 30s decade um obviously dictators 40 but was filmed in the 30s um Hmm. because they like you said we're watching probably the the most earnest part of of Chaplin's career and and sort of the slow death of that earnest character in the tramp mm. to the evolution of his political activism by modern times and that pretty much cocoons into the butterfly that becomes basically the back end of his career like mm. he never goes back to that earnestness right um of a, a tramp character just trying to get by day to day and meets a girl wants to find any way to help the <laughs> find girl find love yeah um I mean, this film still has that, obviously, that romantic aspect to it, but it's not in the same way. It's more out of survival, a condition of survival mm. in modern times. And and they support one another uh, in Ellen and, and, and the Tramp, but uh, it's more out of, like you said, the this because the bureaucratic um, hammer is just pressing them further and further down. And yeah, exactly. They have nothing but to kind of lean on each other to make ends meet and get by it's a really good point because yeah this is the first and i think the only tramp film where the relationship he has with you know especially uh, pollock goddard in this film is, is almost equal you're right because in previous films it is about you know, here's this blind woman who's fallen ill and it's about him trying to find ways to sort of appease or pay you know, pay her rent for example and I, i'm trying to remember the kid i'm feeling really guilty I, I watched these all too close in succession so unfortunately they're blurring for me a bit i'm trying to remember the whole relational well i think the relationship in the kid is solely based on on him and the his surrogate son so i think that's what sort of complicates that storyline but you're right they lean on each other in this film and there's a bit of a the reliance where when he's in jail she finds a home and then the next time he's in jail mm. she finds a job and then manages to get him that job too uh so you're right it's it is that sort of that need for survival and what i thought was so interesting is that up until that film their lives are so miserable and you know the tramp has a this complete breakdown and goes crazy inside the the machine if you want to call it that uh which sends him to the hospital and he struggles to find work he when he's arrested he wants to stay in prison he's committing crimes just to go back to prison so there's all those elements there but it's not until the two of them are sitting together by the side of the road and they see the married couple come out of the house. And that's when they both all of a sudden have this like ideal, idealistic future for each other. Of being, uh, I mean, it's way too early to call it a nuclear family. But this mm. idea of the happy husband and the happy wife. And all of a sudden there is a purpose to this work-life balance of going to work. To provide for your family. To, to build the home. And I thought it was so interesting to inject that. Would you say that's like the midpoint of the film? Yeah, I'd say roughly around the midpoint of the, the film. Yeah. Obviously, it's tough because this film, a lot of Chaplin films are so uh, 
kind of skit by skit almost in their yeah. structure. Um, but yeah, I'd say so. It's such an interesting, and you bring up the nuclear family aspect because we've we've got to take into consideration the children of 1936 grow up to become the nuclear family generation. Sure. Yeah. And that's such an interesting concept, this idea of, like you said, almost um, the ignorance is bliss ideology of growing up in this poverty background, um, poverty background, but having the rhetoric that, oh, if you work hard, this is sort of this utopic depiction of, of happiness is what you mm. gain. But that just wasn't the aspect of, uh, it just wasn't the truth in the Great Depression. People worked, people lost jobs, people, people died because they couldn't provide for their families and and then at the back end of it all, they went into a war. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a few, a uh, couple of decades there, which things were just rough, mate. It's <laughs> about 15 years of like human history in the last 150. You're like, man, I'm glad I didn't live in that 15 years. I know. Imagine, imagine. Being I mean, born co- in, like, COVID was awful, but like a lot of people during COVID just kind of chilled in their houses, collecting government checks and watching YouTube. Yeah. So we're pretty lucky. <laughs> a lot of that stuff to be fair but Absolutely. I, but I just I guess I didn't think about it of like because you, you think about like the boomer age and where that originates of people coming back from war and and making lots of babies Absolutely. <laughs> at that point the baby boom if you will but I guess this is in a lot of ways the birth of I mean we think about that phrase even today this idea of like do you live to work or do you work to live mm. and I guess that does originate from this era where it's so easy to be caught up in in that cog and in that machine of i mean we see the the whole brilliance of the opening scene the physical comedy that charlie chaplin's doing is not only is he like twisting these screws in such a rhythmic fashion because he literally does not have a second to breathe he has to do it at that speed but that when the machine stops and when he takes his lunch break he's still doing that physical motion as he's walking around and he starts twisting people's noses and eyes and things like that um that yeah that it's so easy at that point to get lost in that grind and working just to work that that's the reprieve of like okay well this is something we can't control this industrial age is coming for us and coming for us hard but what is the reprieve in all of that okay well we can use this and of course there's the unions going on to i guess create these conditions where they can go home and okay let's let's build a home let's start a family so it's so interesting to see the way it was introduced and portrayed in this film, but ultimately how incredibly hard it is to do that. And what I think is so special about the ending is that there's a brief moment where it looks like we've won, you know, the tramp and Ellen, they both found jobs. They both found something that they can actually work within those conditions, steady income. And it's immediately undercut by, Oh, but she's still on the run. Yep. The fact that their past catches up to them that you're right, that the, the bureaucratic hammer will not relent. And it's a kind of a very dire ending when you think about it that way. Ah, oh, it's sad, Zeke. Perfect. <laughs> Tied it up into a neat bow. Jake, do you have anything else to add before we need to move into those sweet, sweet highlight scenes? Oh, we like our sweet highlight scenes. There's a few things I want to shout out. Well, first off, I want to shout out the Criterion Collection and the Cineteca di Bologna, which I'm guessing that's French, I'm not too sure, um, who did a fantastic job at rest- uh, restoring the film. I'm guessing there is a um, Criterion release for this film. I think they helped afterwards and did like the digital restoration, removing dirt and scratches and stuff and stabilizing the film. Um, so I wanted to give them a shout out because it's. I love that they have these little headers at the front of the film, especially if you watch them on SBS. Um, just sh- like here's the rest of the work that went into restoring mm. this film that's nearly a hundred years old, 
and that you can still enjoy it in its best condition. I love the work they do, um, especially with the whole like uh, silent speed at 18 frames, but then sound speed at 24 frames a second. Like it's it sounds like a headache. So I want to shout them out. Um, I also want to shout out the very first shot of the film, which of course is like what a flock of um, I think it's a flock of sheep, if I'm not mistaken, and then the uh, the match cut to the flock of people, people. running up the yep. stairs, which is. Um, a little something that happens in Dead Poet Society as well. Little match cut there. The, the, I think it's a flock of birds in that film, and then it cuts to the kids running mm-hmm. down. So it's a bit, a bit shout of a shout out to old Peter Weir. That's it. We like Peter Weir. <laughs> Get onto it, mate. Hashtag <laughs> Peter Weir. One more movie. That's it. Oh, we should start that hashtag. I reckon we should. I like that. I think that's great. Um, yeah. No, I'm just kind of scrolling through my notes, and a lot of it is just these little details and appreciations. Um. Yeah, let's let's jump into highlight scenes. Because what was your highlight scene? I'm gonna go with the department store sequence. So this is obviously Ooh, nice. the tramp takes up a role as a sort of a night watchman, a yep. security guard. There's an interesting aspect to this scene, and and the iconic shot of him like sort of uh, roller skating and and all that around the the shopping center. But the, yep. I think the the most important aspect is obviously, um, and he's billed as Big Bill. So Big Bill. Um, um, and a couple is of he, other the factory yeah, the, workers the rob yep. the the shop. But it's important that we know that he was one of the, the factory workers. Yes, factory and he workers. recognizes um, the um, tramp. And I, I think that's an important aspect. But what I like about this scene, and this comes back to, you know, we've talked about the death of the tramp character. And though I have a relatively limited exposure with only seeing City Lights and, and this film. They're two great films to watch, to be fair. To, to bookend it. Yeah. We see a character that is genuinely earnest and kind and is actually celebrated for his kindness, although the rich mm. man only recognises him when he's drunk. Yeah. His earnest acts in that moment lead to basically his success in the, the film. I mm. mean, he successfully manages to, albeit, steal the money at the end <laughs> and then goes to prison, but he, succe- he succeeds in his mission and... um. That's because he is nothing but kind, and and mm. this scene we see where he meets Big Bill, who are hungry and 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 desperate sort of, and they have no choice. It is is Chaplin's uh, tramp character that once again looks after those that are mm. lesser and puts him, but is punished for it in this this yeah. film by you know not calling the police, not giving in to the authoritarian system that leads to him getting in trouble for basically the thing that has allowed him success in all of his previous endeavours. Mm. And if anything, I think that's bottling exactly what the film is showing us, like you said, and, and really builds on that meta-narrative of the death of the Tramp character. His, his earnestness, clumsy earnestness, mm. um, is what gets him through, and it won't get him through anymore. Yeah. Because um, he has to accept the world that he's going into is is far from the world that he was first conceived 20-something years earlier. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, this idea that, because all these films do represent this, these acts of kindness and the, the, the sense of clumliness he has, is it, it, it's a through line to the heart, and that's why a lot of the stories do involve like a girl that he falls in love with, and, the, and there's that aspect of it as well. And the fact that, you know, bureaucracy and, and the authoritarians always crush on that down... And that this film in modern times, you're right, This it feels like the bookend because it's like he is now in a world where it's completely irreversible. There's a shot in City Lights that I love where it's towards the start, we're looking through the glass window of like a shop and he's looking at the two items 
that are in there and he's the the comical aspect of the scene is there's the trap door that he just somehow keeps avoiding nice. and um but what i loved about that shot is behind him is just like a super busy intersection with all the traffic you know the cars and the people walking and for me i was like this is city lights it's the first hint at he's he is a man out of time and out of place and this film really doubles down on that and i i like what you say about how he does something that's kind he's does something that you know a righteous person would do is like feed these hungry people and yet he is just not only consistently punished for it but it it traps him into this cycle where now he is forever always going to be in that same position as this hungry desperate person it i mean but that's the thing is like as a director he finds a way to tell these heart-wrenching soul-crushing stories through the guise of a of a cute, fun, hypnotic, silent film with slapstick comedy. It's wild, isn't it? It's impeccable yeah. how he does it. And I don't think you could really do that anymore because I think a lot of people probably find his work to be sort of cheesy or, or kitsch or silly. So I I don't think it's something that could ever be repeated again in cinema. But I think I think the great mistake, and I'll say this now, as mm. someone who hadn't watched a a Charlie Chaplin film sure. is we see these excerpts. We see the shot of him on the rollerblades, like wheeling yep. around and we go, Oh, that's kind of kitschy and old and, and fun. And um, I'm sure those films are, are quite whimsical, but I'd get quite bored. Right. Cause we don't allow ourselves to accept those experiences. It's, you know, it comes back to watching the original Frankenstein or watching mm. the original King Kong or watching uh, all quiet on the Western front. We think, Oh, these films are old, so I'm not going to like them. And, and even, the biggest film lovers and the, the biggest appreciators of film, they'll what they'll see a black and white film from the thirties and originally go, mm, do I want to watch this or do I want to watch yeah. a film from today? That it feels like homework and like I I I, I still get that. That's because there's that you know there's the black and white films. Black and white makes much less sense to me than like a subtitled film, for example, because like well it's it's just the color. Like, do you, do you really need, like, the colour to... And I understand, like, colour's more appealing and, I guess, attractive, but... Yeah. I think you're right in the sense that a lot of... Like, we look at the Joker, for example, because there is a section of this film that is in Joker when, when he walks into the theatre. I think that's when he sees um Thomas Wayne in the corner. Um, and I rewatched that scene where he walks in, and it's, you're right, it's the rollerblading scene with the matte painting next to him, and there is that element of danger, but it's comical because the way he's doing it and how he just escapes the threat of death or or pain in that moment. Everyone's laughing, then he laughs, and then the scene plays on, he does something else. So this idea of, like, modern films, and and they probably are directed by people who have an authentic love for these films. They they, they have to pick one scene to as, like, an intertextual thing to reference it, to appreciate it, and they're going to pick one that's very popular, which is him sort of dancing or rollerblading or doing something like that, that doesn't show the true power of what the stories in these films are doing i mean when that last scene in city lights without spoiling it that last interaction between him and the blind girl holy mother of god that hits better than most anything you'll watch in the cinemas today yeah and it does it without a single word so I, i think you're right i think people are afraid because of the accessibility aspect of it it's old and funky looking and black and white there's no words but there are brilliant stories hidden in these films. You have but to try. I mean, yeah. that's it. That's a big thing. What about you, Jake? Yeah, so... I mean, that's a great scene. I do love it. Um, and even just to add to the danger of that scene later when he's running down the escalator with he's still got his skates on. Yep. Just, like, great 
physical comedy commentary. I think I probably do have to go back to the beginning of the film and and almost selfishly because that was my first exposure to Charlie Chaplin was the opening scenes to Modern Times and just immediately taken back by the ingenious of the set design and the giant cogs and the physical comedy of him with the screws. Um, and, and I think the thing that really sold me, even though you could probably argue the scene goes in a little too long, is the whole feeding machine scene where he's been his face has been plastered with all these different foods and drinks and he ends up swallowing one of the screws and like i think that was it for me i was like wow this is like masterful because it has that visual comedy that's very simplistic that someone in the theaters in the early 30s or mid 30s would find hilarious that is still funny today but there's so much laid into the decision of they're finding ways to delete the lunch break from the workplace and it's like, that's such a cold, sterile idea that they're showing in the funniest way possible. Um, I, I just think there's so much about modern times. It's just ingenious the way they represent these ideas and, and make you laugh and smile while it does it. Modern Times is currently out on wide release and on SBS On Demand. Oh, it's beautiful. The best kept secret of streaming. It really is. I, I got to say, before we move on, SBS On Demand... Um, I can't remember if I told this. Tell me if I've already told the story on the air. But um, Kirsty was complaining about I can't remember which service it was. It was another one of the free ad streaming services. She was saying like, "Oh, is this, like this is nothing good on it. It's not enjoying it." So I suggested SBS on demand, and uh, I think she was immediately taken away with it because there's so many great options on there. You know, like Tetans on there. I was wild, shocked. I was shocked by that. Drive my car. I think's on there. It's, just, it's genuinely um, SBS. Keep doing what you're doing, because my God, there are people that genuinely appreciate your existence. I think I, it, it didn't. It was not very long ago that I realized just how much money the traditional television network and ad revenue, playing ads in TV shows, how much money that actually makes the studios. It's insane amount of money. And isn't it funny? Because mm. this is all streaming platforms are going to become. They're yes. going to follow this model eventually. And the best part is we'll all get reduced. Like Netflix will probably go down something as little as four ninety nine, three ninety nine a month, mm. if they're not greedy. Emphasis on that. If they're not oh, greedy, well. <laughs> because the reality is that ads change the game. Mm. They really do. Um, and it's like that service is free and I don't think it'll the best part is it will probably never go up in price because it's a, a government body like right. it's not a, so we're probably safe from mm. that but it is amazing you want to expose yourself to foreign films or, or films that are nearly 90 years old yeah and plenty of brand new films that were in cinemas less than a year ago yeah like it's not just reduced to these classic it's not like Moby although I think Moby does have new stuff on there too it yeah I, it's I think you're right it's the best kept secret in the game and I think ads, I think SBS has a more fighting chance at staying relevant with ads than any of these other streamers do with these $18 a month subscription They're, they're fees. good ads too. Like they're not like, they're, they're the perfect ads, placements ads. as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. And they're relevant ads. They're not like, it's not like a KFC commercial in the middle of the, <laughs> I don't care. I get RSC ads during it, oh, which is ironic because I already pay them a, a half my income. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about cars. I don't want no, to be pulling no, it down. No, no, no. We've had enough of that uh, between the two of us. <laughs> but Jake, speaking of those streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? It's funny you mentioned uh, Agatha Christie earlier because A Haunting in Venice is coming to Disney Plus this week 
Very quick on the ball. Very quick. Look at that. He's also got a film called The Mill, coming to Disney+, Plus, which sees a businessman mysteriously awake in an open-air prison cell and forced to escape before the birth of his son. Hmm. Sounds a bit intense. There you go. Um, John Wick Chapter 4 is coming to Binge and Prime this week. You've also got the Super Mario Brothers film coming to Binge and Netflix this week. So uh, I wouldn't mind rewatching Super Mario Brothers. I haven't fun. seen it, but I probably will watch it. It's fun. It's cute. Hey, lots of great little references in there for the fans. Um, especially that one little flower creature, whatever it was, that just wants to die the whole time. That's my favorite character. Excellent. Overly suicidal Mario character for, for some reasons in that film. <laughs> now, coming to Apple TV Plus this week, we've got a film called Fingernails, which is a controversial new technology prove the compatibility of love between Jesse Buckley's Anna and Jeremy Allen White's Ryan. I think he's from The Bear, which I hear a lot of great things about. Uh, now, this would be all fine, Zeke, if not for Anna still being unsure about their relationship and meeting Amir, played by Riz Ahmed. It's like an indie darling Little. spectacular. I know, I love it. Now, this is actually also playing at Luna in cinemas this week, if you prefer to see it that way, but it is also coming to Apple TV+, Plus. so uh, dealer's choice, Zeke, as they say. Speaking of cinemas... Foe is a sci-fi drama starring uh, Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan as husband and wife whose quiet life is thrown into turmoil when an uninvited stranger shows up at their door with a startling proposal. Ooh. Now, that is an all-star cast, Zeke, but, but caution, because I've, I've, the reviews aren't great. Oh. The, I think that I know the IMDb and uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores. I was like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Bit of pity. That is a shame. A bit of a pity, because I, I do love them both, and I think they would be really wonderful together. So, Well, that's the thing. Are they bad in it, or is it just the story's not very compelling? Yeah, bro. Perhaps it's uh, just an odd film. Yeah. The it is, it is, it is sci-fi drama mix, is a, it's a tough one to pull off. So, uh, I don't know. That could be part of it. I think so, too. Yeah. Anyway, we've also got The Dive, which sees two sisters fight for survival when a catastrophic landslide sends rocks tumbling into the ocean and trapping one of the deep-sea divers below the surface. Is this like Fall, but like underwater? Mm. Were they I'd... sisters in Fall? I have no idea. Not a clue. Not a clue. Let's yeah. hope they don't implode. That's it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man, what a throwback. I can't believe that was this year. Yeah. I can't believe that was this year, Zeke. Jesus. Uh, bring him to me. That's a great quote. Uh, sees loyalties and morals collide when a getaway driver transports an unsuspecting passenger to an uncertain fate. It's a bit vague. Yeah, he's quite vague. Sounds a little, um, what was it Collateral-esque, slightly. Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah, could be that. Who knows? Uh, we got Brand Bollywood Down Under, which spans from 1897 to 2023, uh, and explores the Bollywoodization or globalization, my goodness, of Indian popular cinema through its love affair with Australia. That's interesting. I never knew there was such a relationship between Bollywood and Australia. No, film. I couldn't have made the link. Yeah, so. well, apparently this film would tell us all about it, Zeke. Oh, excellent. Very exciting. Uh, Blue Jean is playing exclusively at Palace this week and sees Rosie McEwen as Jean Newman, a closeted teacher in 1988, who is pushed to the brink when a new student threatens to expose her sexuality. Ooh, that's a bit dark. To finish the story I was saying earlier, Kirsty got SBS On Demand yep. and found a film called The Piano Teacher, 
She's like, oh, that sounds great. Have uh, I have told, told you this, this story? Yeah. I think you've told this on the show. I might have. Might oh, have said it last maybe week. not. Maybe I don't know. That I'm might not too be, sure. You know. But uh, the film was a whole lot less wholesome than she thought it was gonna be. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, reading log lines and ratings might be the the best indication. Yeah, I, I think I think she now knows. Like, I should definitely check up the. It's got a high letterbox score, but but for the reasons that we might give it a high score, is it? <laughs> we're messed up individuals, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, excellent. So that's our SBS on demand warning right there. So uh, uh, there you go, another teacher, maybe risque film out in cinemas. And finally, the thing has a special screening at Luna Leaderville tomorrow, Tuesday the thirty first. That might be my. That's easily my top three horror films of all time. That's at Luna Leaderville. Yes. Oh, I don't think I could convince Lucinda to go watch the thing. Oh, I'd have to. That'd to. be a big campaign. Yeah, I reckon. No, that's fair enough. I would say between that and The Exorcist, I need to find out what my third favorite horror film would be. Yeah, but it's I, so I good. couldn't tell you. Alien, probably. Oh yeah, that's fair enough. That'd be up there. I haven't I need, seen Aliens. I, but... I need to watch Aliens too. So um, yeah, that could. I could crack the list, but that's more of an action film, I understand. Yes. Yeah, it's more of James Cameron-esque production. Right, gotcha. So it might not yeah. might not necessarily fit the criteria for that list. But, um, yeah, so for all the horror fans out there, that's happening tomorrow. Get on it quick, and then we'll see how the tickets go. But that's everything coming to you streaming in cinemas this week, Zeke. Excellent. Well, it is uh, normally time for us to move into our uh, film of the week. Mm. Um, but like we said, we didn't do career updates. No. Um, we left that until the end of... Well, almost the end of the show. But it's important that we say it before we say the film of the week, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. What um, we'll next week, yeah. Well, Jake, I mean, do you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah, one of us has got to do it. <laughs> I don't know if I can say the sentence. Oh, I know. It's sad. So, yeah. Um, so, we've, we've just... Oh, we're about to conclude our 250th episode, which is really... It's a gigantic milestone. I don't think either of us ever thought we were going to hit that. Yeah anywhere near that when we started the show. I mean, this essentially started out, I think we were in a red rooster and we were just kind of like, you know, we've, we've dabbled in the podcast before. We've had some like weird, like we've done some episodes here and there and you know, why don't we just do one? Why don't we just like do one and have a rigged structure and just go for it? And I think that day we recorded and posted our first episode, went to Spotify and all of that for Podbean, yada, yada, yada. So this was nearly five years ago now. Yes. And a lot of a lot's happened in those five years. A lot has. And a lot of episodes have been produced. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> episodes. Show. And um yeah, so don't freak out just yet, everyone. There will be an episode next week. There will be a few more episodes over the weeks after that. But we have decided that I reckon on the would it be the fifth year I guess it's the fifth year end of it. At the yes. end of our fifth year of recording podcasts. Right. End of our fifth season. Which will be about ten weeks from now. Yes. Episode two hundred and sixty. Will be our last Cinema Sideshow podcast. So that leads us with um, what we're going to do over the next 10 episodes, which mm. we're going to talk about that more next week. But yes. what's important right now is we kick this off with the first film on our well, our 10-episode journey, our run home, if you will. Um, our countdown to the end. <laughs> yeah. The final countdown. Um, final countdown. Um, so we're yeah. starting with the film next week. Uh, Jake... What are we watching? Pretty excited about this one. Next week in the show, Zeke, 
We're watching Hot Potato, the story of the Wiggles. We met at university doing a course in early childhood. This connection with music and teaching is what became the Wiggles. Booking agent said, what am I going to do with four men and a dinosaur? Producers said, your videos make us cringe. <laughs> oh no, he's asleep! I remember saying, let's just try it anyway. All of a sudden we were doing 10,000 seat arenas. It was just... Three more tomorrow. We'll get there. People didn't really talk about mental health much in the 90s. If you're successful, then what have you got to be sad about? But it was as bad as it could be. It's horrible to see your mates get affected like that. Greg Page is suffering a mystery illness. It means that my body doesn't pump enough blood or it does. Now I'm going to hand over the yellow skinny to the new yellow wiggle, Sam Moran. It doesn't matter who's wearing the skivvy, as long as we reflect our audience and they're communicating with children. We might be responsible for their first experience of music. Can you sing and do the actions with us? Backstage pass to the global phenomenon of the Wiggles, chronicling the story of three preschool teachers, Anthony, Murray, and Greg, and their friend Jeff, as they triumph over the odds to become one of the most successful children's acts of all time. So, as we just said, before we went away and did the little clip, this is the first of the last ten episodes Mm. we are going to do for this episode, concluding, like you said, with our season five finale of the Cinema Sideshow podcast and end of year awards. Don't get me wrong. Yes. Um, I, I mean, that's the beauty of, of two... I think two... I imagine people would probably ask him, like, 250's a clean number. Why not there? But I, I think 260 is just as clean a number. But you're right. We also get a full season completed. We can do a proper uh, chock top awards and stale... Well, don't forget the stale popcorn. Of course. <laughs> I've got my stale popcorn ready to go. <laughs> I love it. So we can do that as well without missing a beat. Um, but yeah, to ha- to have these next ten weeks, sort of, I I think it's good. It kind of gives us a chance to do some of the things we've always wanted to do before we wrap up the show. Uh, maybe tick off some blacklist films. Maybe get a bit of audience uh, participation involved. And and uh, there's a few things we've discussed earlier today that um I think people are going to be really excited about. Yes. So we're not going to get all sad and mopey and reflective yet. We've still not got yet. some ideas. <laughs> Uh, we're going out with a bang. This is simply the run home. Uh, we're going on our almost famous esque <laughs> journey, or before trilogy journey, um, whichever you call it, yeah. or our journey to Middle Earth. We just did that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, so over the next ten episodes, I'm sure we'll be going there and back again. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Hot Potato: The Story of the Wiggles. Hot potato, hot potato.